Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. If I speak at this volume, can you hear me in the back? And there's lots of space here in front. Lots. Prime real estate. (laughs) Right here. Well, thank you very much for having me here in Madison. Um, Alicia and Andrea and Chanel invited me to come here, as Andrea said. Actually, they invited me to come here. And as usual, when I get an invitation, I sort of stall for a while. So uh, it's, I stalled for maybe, I don't know, a couple months, I think. And then one day, um, a large box arrived in my mail, uh, filled with two pounds of coffee. <laughs> and I was seduced. <laughs> so thank you to Just Coffee for bringing me here. <laughs> Now you know. <laughs> um, I'd like to start with a, a passage from um, a wonderful poet uh, who many of you may know, Wallace Stevens. He writes, To say more than human things with human voice... That cannot be. To say human things with more than a human voice, that also cannot be. To speak humanly from the height or from the depth of human things, this is acute speech. This is acute speech. Or from a Buddhist perspective, this is uh, right speech. So again, um, to say more than human things with a human voice, this can't be. We are human beings, we have a human voice, and fortunately and unfortunately, we're always caught in our human subjectivity. And there's a great blessing in that when our subjectivity comes from the most creative, original, um, spontaneous parts of ourselves, and unfortunately um, is not so skillful when our speech um, falls into patterns of um, assumptions and negativity and violence and also subtle forms of violence 
like uh, gossip or um, creating great stories about how we think things are when they really aren't that way. Has anybody ever done this before? It's a pretty popular, actually. It's called romantic love. Um, but then Wallace Stevens touches on something else here. He says, um, to speak humanly from the height or from the depth, that is acute speech. From our heights and also from our depths. And so I hope tonight in speaking, um, and it's always hard speaking at the beginning of a weekend. You know, it's like giving a Dharma talk before you practice. Um, and I hope that some of the words that I offer are words of encouragement for those of you that already have a practice, whatever that might be. Um, and also uh, maybe inspiring for wherever you are in your life. Um, and there's a saying in Zen that whenever you speak, you get mud on your face. <laughs> and uh, so I'm in a current phase of not preparing uh, these talks until an hour before. Today was two hours. And um, so that I can hopefully speak to what um, is happening for you in your life and for me in my life also. Plays the piano. Oh, upstairs. Yeah. wonderful. <laughs> we should be up there. <laughs> <laughs> and then the vacuum will start. Yeah, she also vacuums like almost every day. She plays the piano and vacuums. <laughs> At the same time? No, usually one after the other. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> she has a very clean piano. <laughs> So, um, further to Wallace Stevens, um, yesterday I had a haircut, believe it or not, and um, while I was getting my haircut, the person who was cutting my hair was um, uh, a musician. He, he plays doom metal. I don't even know what that is, but I like the sound of it. He said it's like met Black Sabbath, but really slow. <laughs> And I actually still don't know what that means, but I really like the sound of it. And uh, so he writes all the songs for the band, and um, he said to me that um, his, his uh, focus in writing music was trying to not write love songs, because there's just enough of them in every genre. And um, 24 hours later, I don't know if I completely agree that there are enough of them, um, but something about what he said really struck me. And I think so many times we um, come to these teachings, and I know some of you have been practicing many years and studying many years, and we have a kind of approach to uh, hearing many of these teachings where we listen for what agrees with our worldview. Um, a lot of people read newspapers like this, you go through the newspaper and you look for articles that agree with your perspective. I do this every day. 
And I hope as I'm speaking tonight that you can um, hear the love song without um, needing to agree or disagree in the same way that we can listen to this piano upstairs without needing to place the sound of the music into a context. Oh, that's such and such a piece. Let's, you know, oh yeah, she's got an interesting interpretation of that, you know. And just to be able to appreciate and to hear. Um, this. And what I wanted to talk about tonight is um, a portion of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra um, where he talks about um, a form of practice that I think often gets overlooked. And I want to offer a sort of uh, um, hopefully uh, um, new interpretation of this section of the end of the first chapter of the Yoga Sutta, also because um, it's a part of the uh, Yoga Sutra that seems to be lifted directly from um, the Buddha's teaching. And um, I think that often gets overlooked also. And um, I have a new, well, there's a few new books coming out, but next year there are two, two books coming out. One you have a, a picture of. <laughs> Some of you are holding it. And the other is a book that's coming out next June uh, called Yoga and Buddhism. And um, so I've been interested for the past little while in drawing out some of the similarities between the, and, and differences between these systems. So at the end of the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, um, Patanjali has been spending a little bit of time talking about samadhi. And the traditional interpretation of samadhi, which is usually interpreted uh, by men and scholars, um, which are very deep stages of meditative quietude. Um, and samadhi is usually talked about in the yoga tradition as technique. So I think a lot of us, when we hear the word samadhi, we think of like this place you get to one day, you know, where everything is just perfect and the kids don't pull on you and eat your desserts at matcha. And um, Patanjali very carefully at the end of the first chapter uh, is going through these deep stages of meditation, um, talking about meditation with seeds and meditation without seeds. So with seeds are seeds where in the meditative state we're planting seeds of karma, that there are subtle actions happening even at the level of perception that are planting seeds. So for example, um, maybe certain feelings arise in our meditation practice that we're very uncomfortable with and they give rise um, to um, anger. And if we're meditating and we're caught up in states of anger, then we're planting seeds of anger in those moments that um, then reinforce, even at a neurological level, um, a response system so that maybe next time we encounter those feelings, we all might respond with anger. So even when we're sitting still, we're still taking action. We're still taking action. And then Patanjali starts talking about um, states of meditation where 
we're not planting so many seeds. And one of the first ways we start to interrupt the seed-making pattern in the mind is by um, finding states of concentration that are not dominated by language. So being able to sit, for example, and hear these sounds um, without so many words. To listen to our friends, to watch uh, birds or bees, or um, walk down the road without being filled with so much grammar, being emptied out of the vocabulary that's known. And any of you who are engaged in creative work, like writing or um, uh, music or dance, uh, many of you know that there are moments that we have in the creative process where we have very quick glimpses of these states um, of mind. And actually I've noticed, especially in retreat, that many artists actually get scared of these states. Because, for example, a writer who is used to operating in the field of language experiences briefly what it's like to not have language. And it can be scary because it might feel like your inspiration is going to go. That you're going to end up as the solemn monk, you know, in a monastery never uh, producing another piece of art, you know, which I think might be a good thing sometimes. Um, but actually what we find when we can sustain those states is that in the absence of what's known, there is a wellspring there. And out of that wellspring or out of that void, um, there's tremendous life. Because what shows up is a surprise and much more interesting and creative than what we can come up with on our own. So this is the stage for the last section of the chapter. And what the, the traditional reading of that is this is somebody who's left their home, there's no diapers to change, it's probably not a woman unless the nest is empty, and they're in deep stages of meditation in a cave somewhere, achieving this kind of samadhi. And then Patanjali follows through and saying, this is the traditional interpretation, and if you can't achieve that, then there's a five-fold path for you. <laughs> and the five-fold path uh, consists of um, five forms of practice that one can um, presumably employ um, if they're not reaching the deep stages of meditation, which I'm about to critique, if you can't tell. Um, the first one is shraddha, which means faith. In Theravada Buddhism, these are the five powers of mind. The second is virya, which is usually translated as energy. The third is uh, smriti, which um, often is translated as remembering, like remembering purpose, but we're going to translate it as mindfulness. Uh, for those of you who are Theravadan Buddhists, in uh, Pali, that's sati. Uh, samadhi, which is usually translated as absorption, which I'll translate as intimacy. 
And um, last is uh, pragna, which is usually translated as wisdom, and we'll retranslate it by the end of the evening. So let's just go through those again. So the first one is faith. The second is energy. Mindfulness. Intimacy. And um, wisdom. Any questions so far? We, we've already covered so much. Uh, if there are questions, just put up your hand. This doesn't have to be so formal. And I, I'm really interested in debate. Yeah. And just so you know beforehand, I'm not authorized uh, as a teacher and I'm not certified in anything. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, my main practice is not knowing. <laughs> so I'm not here at the front of the room as a kind of expert that you should listen to and then, you know, swallow what you hear. But um, if as I'm speaking there's something that needs some clarity, please, please ask questions. Um. So how does sam, um, samastitihi... Samadhi? No. Samastitihi. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. um, how are these five... Related? Yeah. Ah. Mm. I haven't thought so much about that, but we'll, we'll get okay. to it. Because once we go through all of them, I hope that I'm going to end by talking about how they balance each other. Oh. Yeah. So, um, any other? Repeat them again. Let's go one by one. So the first one is Shraddha, which uh, means faith. And um, I think usually um, the way we think about spiritual practice is that we have faith in some kind of belief system. We, there is a kind of overarching uh, metaphysics or a creation story or a, a, a model of divinity or a model of life after death or no life after death or neither life after death or no life after death. Some kind of belief system that interests us that we're trying to commit to. And in this model, faith is thought of in a slightly different way, which is that um, faith is a kind of confidence or a kind of trust that uh, changes as we practice and comes along with a twin, which is doubt. <laughs> and faith and doubt really work together. And I think when we live in a way that try and separates them, then the um, ratcheting up of faith puts doubt in the shadows. And we know that when we put something in the shadows, it comes to haunt us. And when we have a kind of faith that doesn't leave room for doubt, then our practice can become misguided. 
And it becomes misguided because it ends up adhering to a belief system that can obscure um, the changing flow of how life really happens. And in Patanjali's system, and I'm also going to argue that um, this is true of the teachings of the Buddha, that doubt is not so much doubt in a belief system, but rather um, the faith to doubt the nature of the person who is listening to these words. So as I'm speaking, there's often a sense that there is a you that is hearing these words, and probably what we put more faith in than anything is uh, the truth of our essential nature, that I exist. And I would say that what Patanjali is getting at here from a more psychological perspective is the health of doubt. And I don't mean doubt like the doubt that leads to kind of indecision in our life or the kind of um, small self-doubt that I think like self-judgment that plagues so many of us, you know. But rather the health that comes when the power of inquiry is really strong in our life. And what has always attracted me so much to yoga teaching um, is the value given to uh, doubt and questioning. And in some Buddhist traditions, like in the Chan tradition, um, like the teachings of Lin Chi, um, doubt is actually the main practice. And some of you might know his famous comment, um, great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. <laughs> and I think the place we see this the most in our culture um, is young people. And we see very clearly with teenagers especially what happens when the inquiry factor is really strong in that phase of their life and the possibility of really questioning is shut down. And then the doubt goes underground and come up, comes up in all kinds of perverted ways that are not so helpful, you know, and become much harder to integrate. And so when doubt is met by blind faith, doubt gets shut down. But you actually can't really shut it down, right? It just goes underground and shows up in some other way. So the power of questioning and faith really go together. And I think that in your practice, when there is a lot of room made for doubt, then the faith factor gets really strong. But when they're split, when they're compartmentalized, then um, they don't work together. Sometimes in the Buddha's teaching, he uses the uh, simile of a practice where there are uh, two ox uh, pulling a um, cart, 
and you know one's not working so well and you go around in circles. And I would say that this twinning is similar when we think about faith and doubt. So again, the doubting is not doubting whether the doctrine is accurate. It's not that kind of doubt. That's, that's more of like a critical thinking. But the doubting that happens when we question without necessarily needing to grasp an answer. It's not a kind of uh, form of calculation. It's a form of contemplation where uh, there's space enough in our practice that we can ask questions because we don't know. We really don't know. And I don't know about you, but in times in my own life when I've experienced a lot of dukkha, a lot of um, unsatisfactoriness, a lot of suffering, um, when I look back at what helped relieve that suffering, um, part of what the relief entailed was a letting go of what I knew or thought I knew. And we think we know something, or we think we know about how um, a relationship is going to go. Oh, relationships are linear. <laughs> we know how our teenager is going to turn out. And then we set up the conditions for suffering. It's, but it's self-generated, right? <laughs> So I want to sort of just conclude a little bit about around doubt just by thinking about faith and doubt as a practice of inquiry and not necessarily falling into the trap of thinking, as our, uh, thinking of our spiritual practice as um, a practice of ideology, uh, of commitment to theology, because that's what, that's what Patanjali is going after. I want to add one more piece to that. Um, the, the Han Shan factor, uh, which is that um, I think so many of us are so used to um, thinking about um, things in terms of divisions. Mind, body, spirit, soul, heaven, hell, nature, and culture. And um, I came across this wonderful poem by Gary Snyder um, that I thought really captured um, this sense of inquiry. I would like to say coyote is forever inside you, but it's not true. Say it one more time. Listen to this. I would like to say coyote is forever inside you, but it's not true. So the poem starts out with the romantic sense of the coyote, the wilderness, that this is always inside you. Um, and then the door slams shut, um, but it's not true. 
If you look around, is that true? And this comes from a phase of Gary Snyder's writing where he uh, captured in a wonderful book called No Nature, where he talks about how everything is natural. Everything's natural. Uh, nuclear weapons are natural. Violence is natural. Fascism is natural. Anarchy is natural. Democracy is natural. Fans are natural. Flowers are natural. Family is natural. Urethane is natural. Um, everything we make and create, compound chemicals, are natural. But what Gary Snyder is trying to make a distinction between is the natural and the wild. And how although everything is natural, um, there is a way where the wild has created a kind of fear in us that has allowed us to respond by exploiting it. And given us the illusion that it's exploitable, um, but also in our own life, I could go much further with the ecology of the wild, but, but in your own life, in your own psychology, where we've lost touch with the wild. And I'd say that contemplative practice, when it's really done well, is a kind of return to the wild. Although you could argue that it's so cultural and so um, refined as a kind of cultural practice, I would say that it returns us to the most wild parts of ourselves. Any of you who've spent time on silent retreat, you know this. It returns you to your insanity. <laughs> and I always remind beginner students on retreat that those first 10 days of insanity um, are what humbles you and gives you the fuel to practice because you realize that um, you don't know how to work with your mind. And I also encourage people who teach not to um, um, not to pull students at the beginning of their practice out of that zone of being overwhelmed by the craziness of their mind and to be as loving and supportive as possible but to try and hold people in that space long enough that they really see the wild <laughs> in their own mind. And I would say, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, that what happens when we're in touch with what's wild in us is that it then gets expressed in the world um, as samadhi, as the um, expression of intimacy. But we'll get to that. Because now we're heading towards, what's next? Virya, energy. Now, I like to translate virya not as energy, but as enthusiasm. And it's the kind of enthusiasm we get from practice when it's working. I've come from Toronto, and in Toronto we have an uh, anarchistic community of yoga and Buddhist practitioners 
that we call center of gravity sangha. I don't even know what that is. But uh, over the years, we've developed quite a wonderful community. And um, it's, I think of center of gravity as a kind of collaborative learning community with this uh, experiment of how to create committed formal practice and the opportunity for expressing that practice in your life, in your community, in your family, um, without much hierarchy. So the model is a flat model that we call open source, with the idea that these teachings are available, we practice them together, we study them together, and we argue with each other. Um, so that the practices can really be alive and we can see what works and what doesn't work. And um, because the main form that the practice takes is inquiry, um, it's interesting how when you give people a practice that they can struggle with and they do it in community, it creates a kind of social enthusiasm. And just like going to church, I mean, what's so wonderful about Sunday morning is community. Having people gather together for doing something other than increasing their capital or consuming or producing. And so enthusiasm is something I think that really comes when we do this practice in the context of community. At the same time, for some people, community participation might mean sweeping the floor before anyone comes in the room because we're so shy, we just want to sit in the corner. And that's also sangha, that's also community. Or for other people, the community is most felt when they're in their garden, away from humans. That's also community. So not to define community just to um, four limbs and eyes and vertical spine and so on. Community is everywhere and everything. And I'd say that the more in touch we are with the wild, the more we appreciate community because we feel how it's us. I know for me, coming here tonight, going for a walk in four blocks, I feel a kind of relaxation. And I look around and I realized I always feel relaxed when I'm in a neighborhood where there aren't fences. The first thing I noticed about the properties here is that the backyards kind of blend in with each other and, you know, people walk through someone else's yard to get to the next street. And it, it creates a kind of looseness in the body where you can meander, where it's a little bit wild. Good fences make good neighbors doesn't necessarily mean literal seven-foot-tall fences. Or one's going down the marriage bed or something. 
So when you put energy and doubt together, when you put energy and faith together, that's when the practice starts rolling. The energy that comes from being supported in your doubt. I think um, I went on a retreat for a month and um, I had an experience on retreat where I was um, looking at um, the surface of an ocean this is in western Canada and British Columbia and um, just studying the top of the waves and something happened where this was after about three weeks of not being around humans. It was a solo retreat. Something happened where suddenly the movement of the wave that I'd been studying all day um, was the same as the thoughts in the mind. And it was like the thoughts in the mind and the movement of the wave. And just as I was about to think that, everything became a wave. The, the trees were waving. The clouds were waving. The whole body was waving. And all that was around was waving. And then it stopped. And then I had this sense of this, this, this sense of how, how can anybody not react to their life with questions? This was the first thought I had. It wasn't about me. It was sort of about humans. How can anybody not react to these waves with questions? And that day, I had no idea what that meant. And by the time night came, I was kind of disappointed. Because, of course, the mind comes in with all its reading and everything. It says, oh, this was the experience of this kind of samadhi. And this was like a mystical experience. But the residue of the experience was not peace, was not deep, deep um, happiness or calmness. It was actually this question, a kind of nagging question. And then I had this thought that, oh, well, I guess my meditation's incomplete because the books don't say it's supposed to be like this. And the teachers always talk about the, you know, oneness with everything. And the oneness for me gave rise to this question, this kind of doubt, this, this inquiry. Like, how can we not respond to the fact that our life is structured by death without questioning? And I guess... I never used to ever tell this story in public, and it's sort of one of the first times I've ever told this story in public. Because I, I think now, in retrospect, I, I see that what happened that day was a kind of uh, spontaneous inquiry that's taken me so long to see as valuable. <laughs> I always thought of it, of it as incomplete, you know. 
And so this weekend, as we're practicing together, I really encourage you to practice with this kind of beginner's mind, as Shinru Suzuki says. Shinru Suzuki says, in the expert's mind, there, no, in the beginner's mind, he says, there are many possibilities, and in the expert's mind, few. And if our life is structured by death, if your body is impermanent, if all the effort you're putting into your relationships um, are simultaneously giving rise to an awareness that this relationship is also changing, if all of the effort you're putting into your backbends and your headstands and your full lotus in an arm balance is simultaneously giving rise to some awareness that it's also slipping away. If all of your study is simultaneously giving rise to the fact that your mind is arranging its own vanishing act, then the practice is working. The practice is working because as we start to accumulate. See, when you practice, I mean, the ego is still there, and it accumulates stuff. I mean, that's how you get spiritual. I'm so spiritual now. I went to this weekend workshop, and now I'm spiritual. <laughs> um, we're simultaneously committed to the practice, and at the same time, we're seeing how the practice is giving rise to a slippage. And what's slipping away is every place where the ego starts to grip on to the practice. And then we get faith. And then we get energy and enthusiasm rather than ambition. Because we see that we're practicing, and even what we're practicing, we can't hold on to. Is this making sense? Do I need to stop here, or? Yeah, no? Questions? Keep going. Yes. Doesn't that ebb and flow, though? Just like yeah. everything else, mm -hmm. we realize it's moving yeah. Sure. Yeah, you make a commitment to something, and then you see the impermanence in it. But then you can't really study the impermanence of it without the commitment. Yeah. And some part of the mind's like, oh, can it just be one thing? You know? If you're not into paradox, this is the wrong practice. <laughs> just so you know, wrong workshop. <laughs> Ambition? Yeah, you're contesting. I'd say that um, if Patanjali were here, he would probably have a deep distrust of ambition. Um, 
whether it's talked about in terms of right livelihood or karma yoga, what happens when we're in touch with what makes us feel alive? And when you're in touch with what makes you feel alive, the world is quite vibrant and there's energy. Um, at a technical level, for example, in meditation practice or in asana practice, when you're sitting and you're really focused in on the technique and you get too focused on technique, the energy starts to die a little bit in the practice and you kind of are killing it a bit with the technique. So virya is always something we're looking for in the practice just the right amount of technique so that the energy is there. The inquiry is there. The faith is there. The doubt is there. There's, there's virya. There's enthusiasm. And I would say ambition shows up when um, the self-image shows up. And maybe there's a talent that we have and we need to do something with it as opposed to being in touch with that talent or that skill and, and pursuing our activity as a form of art because we love it for the sake of it and for the service of others. As opposed to, you know, I am a writer. I get this all the time because sometimes I hang out with writers and they all smoke and drink. And when I was a kid, I just wanted to be Jack Kerouac. And so, like, I want to, like, finish the day writing and, like, have a cigarette. And I can't do it. I wish I had the constitution to do it. I kind of pretend sometimes that, like, I'm drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. It doesn't really work. Um, but to see how there are characters for our professions and our careers. Um, and to watch how our culture presses those characters into us so that when we have a spark, we try to figure out how to uh, market it and promote ourselves and so on. And um, this creates deeper and deeper grooves of suffering in our lives because it keeps us in the self-image zone where the primary movement of our activity is ambition rather than the enthusiasm that comes from just loving what we do. I don't want to sound naive and say like, oh, you just love every, and every day is so wonderful with the kids, you know? I mean, listen to Gary Snyder here. I'd like to say coyote is forever inside you, but it's not true. And it's not peace and agave nectar every day. Too much agave nectar, and you don't drink your tea. That's right. <laughs> uh, there's a little joke about this in Sanskrit. Is 
the word for sugar comes from Sanskrit sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha. They say too much sukha causes truth decay. <laughs> um, what's next? Shraddha, virya, smriti, or in Pali, sati. People are always surprised in the Yoga Sutra to see this word smriti. It's kind of interesting. Patanjali teaching mindfulness. How can that be? Um, this actually, you know, in English we translate this word as mindfulness, but it actually means to return. The etymology of the word in Sanskrit means to remember. Um, so what this means is, in, technically, in meditation practice, that there's an object of meditation and that we return to it over and over. So, for example, if anybody here has ever tried to sit in meditation practice without any technique, for most people, you sit and in about five minutes you're just as neurotic as you usually are, and you're the main character of everything, and so on. Um, oh, and you're spiritual. And um, so mindfulness is the, the act of catching a distraction and returning again to an object of meditation. Let's say the object is the breath, or a mantra, or a candle, or a visualization, or what have you. Um, mostly I work with the breath, so coming back to the breath. So the measurement of that practice is returning, which I always love, rather than attaining. Okay. So mindfulness is about returning. So this is the third part of the practice, is returning to this. To this. To what? Fan? Oh, the piano. Oh, this room. Um, this is a wonderful poem from a contemporary haiku poet named George Swede. 17 syllables. After the search for meaning, bills in the mail. <laughs> After the search for meaning, bills in the mail. There's a wonderful Korean poet named Ko Ahn, who some of you might be familiar with. He has a poem like this. He says, um, Some think about the next thousand years. Some think about the last thousand years. Me, on a windy day, I'm waiting for the bus. <laughs> Gary Snyder has a wonderful poem. He says, Go ahead, you be compassion, and I'll just be the cab driver driving you home. <laughs> Reminding you that this is an everyday mundane practice. Bills in the mail is as valuable a practice as community shared agriculture, 
as sitting on your zabuton. All these practices flow into each other and to be careful where we put a hierarchy in there. And what mindfulness is, is it's the gem because there would be no dharma without mindfulness because otherwise the dharma would just be theology. The dharma is not a doctrine. It's, it's, it's an attentiveness to the laws of how things happen. It's attentiveness to the wild. And without mindfulness, there's no dharma. Because without mindfulness, there's no attentiveness. And in our attention deficit society, we need mindfulness practice. So we can come back to something at midnight when we're going to the fridge for our ninth dinner. When you're going for your eighth ice cream and your seventh husband. Eighth husband, sorry. Ninth husband. I have a friend who's been married five times. And he said, but I've been so present with each wife. (laughs) He also said to me once, you can always leave a wife, but you can never leave an (laughs) ex-wife. I should have him here, actually. He has some good stories. Anyways... So mindfulness is kind of, we've been talking about sort of twins, and you could say that mindfulness is almost the twin of attainment. Forward-moving, ambitious mind. It's stopping and returning to this. Coming back to this. So is it stopping or is it returning? It's both. It's stopping and returning. Because the first part of mindfulness is just recognizing, literally recognizing, recognizing that you've been caught in such and such a loop. And in the recognition, there's a stopping. And then the technique is coming back. back. So I'd say mindfulness encapsulates both the stopping, the recognition, and the returning. And I've been talking about everyday life and informal practice Having said that, I think that we all like to say, oh, everything is practice. But really, without formal practice, I don't think everyday life can be practice. I think it can be naive. And I'm a bit of a stickler for formal formal practice, as some of you will uh, explore with me this weekend. And one of the wonderful things about formal practice is it teaches us some skills that are so practical. So that when we find ourselves consumed or entangled in, caught up in greed and envy and violence, even in speech and anger and confusion, that um, we have some skills so that we can take some responsibility for our actions internally in the mind, in the body, and also in the body politic. I mean, I don't know about those of you who are parents, but for me, I have a six-year-old son, and that's been one of the greatest motivations to practice. 
is so that there's more tenderness in our relationship. And um, the, the seeds are there for a friendship, I hope, you know, as we age. And it's so motivating for, for, for me personally. So I get some enthusiasm from that. So that's the mindfulness piece. We're going to go through all of this all weekend, but I just want to lay them out. What's the next one? Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, when you um, say formal practice, are you speaking of uh, physical asana and contemplative? Well, I'm being a little bit vague because um, I don't know everybody here. And uh, the way it works in our community is there are some general guidelines for practice, but I meet with students one-on-one and um, make sure the practice is working for them so that um, there is a balance between uh, meditation practice, asana practice, and um, I spend a lot of time uh, working with ethical precepts and how those can come alive in our life also. Um, so it'll look different for different people, but when I talk about formal practice, that's what I'm referring to. If you've read, there's a book called The Inner Tradition of Yoga. If you see that book, you should run out and buy it in triplicate for your family and friends. And uh, Patanjali's eight limbs are listed there, and I really use those eight limbs as a model for practice. But these five limbs are a good model, too. Are you here all weekend? Okay, so, so hopefully we'll touch on what these different practices are. So the fourth piece, uh, Samadhi. Yeah. So the Indo-Tibetan tradition is addicted to lists. They love lists. The eight of these, and the four of these, and the seven of these, and the three of these. And there are times where lists are so helpful, especially on the fridge, or when you're learning. You know, it's so helpful sometimes to have lists. But, you know, as you go deep into practice, the great thing about lists is you see how the pieces connect with each other. And samadhi is one of these. The traditional Indian interpretation of samadhi is that it's kind of the top of the ladder. Mm-hmm. How many of you are familiar with the eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga? You know, usually it's, it's a kind of ladder. It starts with ethics. And if your ethics are really good, then you get to meditate and so on until finally you get samadhi with, like, stars and <laughs> flashing lights and everything. And... Um, no menstrual cramps. It's really amazing. That's what I hear. What's that? Well, here comes the critique. Samadhi is also impermanent. And samadhi is... In meditation practice, what samadhi means is a such absorption in present experience that self-image collapses. Self-image collapses. And there is an openness and a kind of intimacy where the me story 
that we invest in drops away. But samadhi is temporary. I have met people in my life who I think are very awake. And I've never met anyone who doesn't have a self-image. And the few people I have met who don't have a self-image are institutionalized. <laughs> and I'm sure if Artie Lang was here or something, he'd say those are the shamans of the culture. But it's really good to have a self. Like, you don't want to be one with a car. <laughs> I mean, it's nice if you're in here and you feel oneness with the cars, which is a valid you know, can be a valid and very deep form of concentration. But when you're walking down the street, you don't want to be one with the car. You want to have a self that's separate from headlights. You know? um, the point is, is that if I reach, or it's not me who reaches, but if there is samadhi on this cushion here in this room, I still have to get up and go pee and, and flush really good drinking water uh, into the lake? No. No? A holding tank somewhere that we probably will never see. And there's somebody who's taking care of it. Right? Uh, I have to go and I have to buy vegetables. And I have to decide what kind of vegetables I'm going to buy. And if I go to a restaurant and they're serving meat, I have to take a position. Am I going to eat the meat, not eat the meat? Where does it come from? Suddenly, you're in the world of karma. And so I think we like to get these ideas sometimes that there is a samadhi beyond karma, where then you move through the world, and the actions that you take have no consequences, and I just don't buy it. So my interpretation, and this is not the traditional interpretation, is that samadhi is such deep intimacy with the world that it creates the conditions for the first limb to show up, which is ethics. That samadhi is the deep experience of intimacy with everything that creates the conditions for understanding karma, that your actions have an effect. And I would say this is exactly what, I, you know, the most radical form of non-dualism in Western culture right now, I think, is deep ecology. And this is really what the deep ecologists are saying, too. That the kind of intimacy where we realize that you, what's your name? Pam, are just as important as the bird song. And you and the bird are equal. Whoa. I mean, can you really take that in? That you and the bird or the cicada, you're equal. You're equal. And so I'm interested in a kind of imminent samadhi, not a transcendent samadhi. And so I like to translate samadhi as intimacy because in my own life, and in the community in which I practice, it seems like what samadhi really refers to is a very deep sense of intimacy. And what I'm interested in with my students is when you have experiences of samadhi, classical experiences of samadhi, 
what are you going to do with it? It's not enough to have your own private experience. It has to be expressed. Because we're human beings and we operate with language and with communication and we need to express ourselves. And self-expression is so healing. And the focus in our community is how to express ourselves in the world. And for one person that might be um, trying to not, you know, grab her kid so hard when he's acting out. And for somebody else, it's going to be calligraphy. And for someone else, it's going to be making a film. And for somebody else, it's going to be law. And for somebody else, it's going to be breaking the law. How to express your intimacy, your realization of intimacy. And the fifth? Anybody remember? Pragna, wisdom. How are we doing for time? I'll try and wrap up in a few minutes. Is, every, is, it, is, the, is the enthusiasm still around? <laughs> I know it's hot and it's like standing like a cow. <laughs> we'll take a break in a little bit and then we'll have questions and more questions. Would you say the Sanskrit? Pragna. So this is always translated as, well, first of all, it's always translated as prajna. I don't know where that comes from so much, but um, the gnya is really quite important because actually in Sanskrit, gnya, gnya is where, like pragna, the gnya is where we get the word gnosis or knowledge. Eventually we drop the gnya. Um, <laughs> But often we hear, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, especially as prajna, um, which usually is translated as wisdom, but it's actually a really interesting word. Pra means to come before or before, and gnya means to know. So pragna means to know before knowing. Before knowing. To hear the piano and to listen before you know. How many of you have been in long-term intimate relationships with a lover, maybe? And you, yeah, I know, you don't want to put up your hand. And, uh, and uh, you finish their sentences? Just admit if you finish other people's sentences. Even a sibling, a parent. So this is the opposite of pragna, right? Someone starts speaking, and you already know what they're going to say. And you say, and then you justify, oh, I'm just so intuitive. <laughs> but, you know, any of you who are involved in creative work, it's the flow. When you know, you know before you know something. And I don't really want to call it intuition, because it's not quite intuition. It's, it's not as formed as intuition. But it's kind of that wisdom heart that knows. Like that part of you in crisis that knows that it's going to be okay. That no matter what the crisis is, by 4 o'clock in the morning, you can fall asleep. 
Because you can find your breath. That even in intense anxiety, you're still breathing, and you can find the pragna breath, pragna mind. That even in the deepest loneliness and boredom, you can find that knowing. And that's what we're cultivating. And I would say that the expression of pragna is spontaneity and creativity. That, that wisdom, I, I, I like wisdom, nothing wrong with wisdom, but I don't think that word, just like the word samadhi as concentration, doesn't really capture what that feels like. So I'd say that pragna in action is the creative response we have to life. creative response to, we have towards life. And I'd say that the, the word that captures that most clearly is probably love. And I don't mean so much personal love, but the love that doesn't have the pronoun, <laughs> that's unqualified, that's less conditioned. So these are these five factors. And they need to balance one another. If you have a lot of enthusiasm and not so much mindfulness, the practice can get misguided for obvious reasons. If you have a lot, a lot of samadhi, a lot of concentration, yeah, but not so much faith, and sometimes the concentration can get geared in towards um, um, even unethical ends. I mean, technically, uh, you can have pretty deep concentration um, and, uh, you know, shoot things out of airplanes. So it's important that we see how these factors are balancing one another. I want to say a few more things, but I think we should have a little break and then open it up a little bit for uh, debate and discussion. And um, um, then we can take some of this a little bit further. So, uh, how, like 10 minutes smoke break? <laughs> Does that sound okay? All right, let's do that.